Good morning, everybody. Jesus really shocked everybody. He still does. Um, Even people who knew him uh, were surprised by some of the things that he said. And uh, they stood pretty much in awe of him. Um, sometimes they, they were very greatly comforted. Other times they were greatly challenged. Other times they were thinking, are you sure you wanted to say that? If you know the Gospels, you know that there were moments like that. In John chapter 8, we won't turn there. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 this morning. But I want to remind you of something in John 8 where he argues with the Pharisees. And it's a very verbally violent argument, really, actually. And uh, they were, of course, planning to kill him, of course. And um, he, he's challenging them, and they're challenging him. And uh, they say, who do you think you are, you know? And uh, he said, well, who do you think you are? And interestingly, they said, we are sons of Abraham. And do you, I don't know if you guys remember, but... Um, Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, no, you're not. You're not sons of Abraham. If you were sons of Abraham, you'd be acting like Abraham. But by the way, you are the son of the person you act like. This is a sobering reality. He says, if you were really sons of Abraham, you would have acted like Abraham. You're trying to kill me. I'm an innocent man. That has no righteousness in it, and it has no justice in it. I want you to remember those two words. There's, it's not righteous, and it's not just. You're attacking me, and I'm innocent, and you're going to try and kill me? He says, no, you're not, you're not sons of Abraham. Now, what I want to point out is how important it is to be a son of Abraham. See, the Pharisees had one thing right. To be connected to the promise of Abraham is to be connected to the seed of Abraham is to be connected to the ultimate salvation of the world. Are you guys following me? No? Okay, good. (laughs) To be connected as in, grafted into or born into, born again into the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 means that through the seed of Abraham, he's going to save the world and you along with it if you'll come to the seed of Abraham. This promise to Abraham is crucial. See, Jesus doesn't correct them about that. They were, the Pharisees knew that it's important to be connected to Abraham because that's how the world will be saved. They thought they were connected because they were Jewish, and Jesus said, that's not true. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you have to repent and come to me. Now, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul picks up on this. Abraham is used several times in the New Testament, as you know, as we've studied Genesis. You've you've realized how important he is. The Apostle Paul says, as a matter of fact, when you come to the Messiah, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, if you come to the Messiah, you are... Abraham's offspring. And he's talking to Gentiles. Ham-eating, stinking Gentiles. Because you've been grafted in to a promise God made clear back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would save the world through the seed of Abraham. So when you come to the Messiah who is the seed of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3. You are grafted in, bypassing the law of Moses, right back to 
the covenant with Abraham, which is by grace through faith apart from works. And Paul makes that very clear in the first three chapters of Romans. So it really is very important to belong to Abraham. And Jesus wanted them to know that until they came to him, they wouldn't belong to Abraham. And he could tell by how they were acting. No righteousness and no justice in what they were doing. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 18, where we will be this morning as we continue in the Abraham saga, the Abraham narrative. And remember that um, these famous stories that we're reading here in Genesis, the stories themselves are famous. What's not so well known among people, even people who know their Bible, is the larger story in which they are embedded. Genesis, the most important thing about Genesis is actually Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. Everything before then is leading up to Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham that God is going to save the world through his seed. And everything after Genesis 12 is about Abraham and his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons, all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. It's tracing the seed of Abraham through his sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, all the way to the end of the book. So now we slow down and we come into a section here in, in um in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, it's actually, it's actually one account um, and a very, very famous account um, in which the Lord visits uh, Abraham and Sarah, clarifies the promise, there's intercession, and then there's the second half of the story is chapter 19, which we won't get into, but it's very, very dark. Chapter 19 is uh, an extremely dark chapter, there's an attempted homosexual rape, there's a complete destruction of two entire towns, and there's an incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. Chapter 19 is really depressing, so I'm letting Travis teach that next week, <laughs> and I'm just doing chapter 18. Now, there's hope. Travis will show you there's real hope even in chapter 19, you see God's grace, but... Uh, I want you to see that this is a moment in, uh, in Abraham's life, a 24-hour period. They, it slows down for two whole chapters on just one 24-hour period in Abraham's life. It's really important. And so we're going to do the first half of it now. Uh, a little bit of background here, just to be reminded. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are 99 and 89 years old, respectively, and this becomes super important as we, as we tell the story. Uh, they're beyond childbearing. They've been in the they've been in the uh, uh, the promised land for uh, 24 to 25 years by now, and God never told them why it was going to take so long. It's really frustrating when things take so long and God doesn't explain to you why. He did the same thing with Job when he was God didn't come and say, "Now Job is going to be really hard on you here for a little while, but it's going to turn out okay." He doesn't do that. He lets the thing unfold, and we're going to see some important things about that. They've been there 25 years. The Lord has ratified this covenant with Abraham in two different ways. We saw it in chapter 15. Remember the thing with the animals all cut in half and, and, the, and the, the Lord going down between? and Okay, that whole covenant ceremony, super important passage in uh, Genesis 15. Then it was uh, reiterated again in chapter 17. In chapter 15, Abraham doesn't do anything. He goes to sleep and God actually goes through and makes the covenant. In chapter 17, Abraham does do something. He 
um, enters into circumcision for himself and for the whole household. Trav talked about that last week. So it's been reiterated, it's been confirmed, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And you live on promises, promises. You ever feel like, I'm tired of living on promises, promises? That's what they were doing until here. In chapter 18, Abraham is, receives a direct visit from the Lord. And in the process, a promise is fulfilled and a judgment is announced. And Abraham becomes a part of what God is doing in the next chapter, chapter 19. So let's have a look at chapter 18 of, uh, of Genesis. In the first 15 verses, the Lord comes personally to him. Let's have a look at it. The Lord, now this is Yahweh. Uh, I, I, I explain this fairly regularly, but you need to be aware in your English Bible, when it says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You see that in there? In your text? When it has that in there, that's the English for the Hebrew proper name, covenant name of God, Yahweh. That's underneath that, it, all caps, Lord, is Yahweh. Okay? It's the Hebrew word. So this is Yahweh himself appearing to Abraham in physical form. He looks like a man and, uh, he's, uh, and he's got two angels with him. The Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre, a very famous place at that time. It's east of uh, Hebron in southern Judah. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And remember their tents were huge, big, thick things with big poles, posts in the middle. I mean, they weren't pup tents. These were big. And he had hundreds of people in his, in his clan, you might say. And he's the chieftain of the clan, you might say. And he's in the heat of the day, everybody just took a little siesta. And uh, that's Spanish. It's not Hebrew. But they did the same thing. In the hot weather, they took a little rest. And he's out there. And then three men, it calls them men, they simply show up and it shocks him. And it turns out that this is Yahweh and two angels. But they look like normal humans. And this is where we uh, are introduced to a person we later find out is the angel of Yahweh. It's a, it's a technical term for a particular angel, but he's more than an angel. He is the physical manifestation of Yahweh when he's talking to somebody in the Old Testament. It's called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. I personally think, and I'm among, it's a traditional interpretation. Scholars argue about it a little bit, but that's what they get paid for. Um, there's um, a traditional view is that this is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ. I think that because it says in John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God at any time unless they've seen Jesus. Bottom line, first 14 verses of John chapter 1. So a lot of people think, well, maybe that's who, they, because this is definitely Yahweh. This is definitely Yahweh, and he speaks directly as Yahweh in this whole thing in between chapters 18 and 19. So, the three men were standing in front of him, verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Um, why? Well, he knows that something special is happening here. Three guys show up. There's no camels. There's no, this is the desert area. How did they get here? I don't know. They just appeared. And Abraham's starting to think, 
oh, well, this isn't just your average guys going by. And he's absolutely right because he says, oh, Lord, he uses a different term there, Adonai. But it indicates that he knows that this is special. Um, they come, he, he bows himself down. He says, look, if I found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. This is all, all very polite language would have been used in that era. Let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the, under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. He calls it a morsel. It's actually 36 pounds. Okay, so like he, it, it, I mean, he really overdoes it here. And, and the point is, these are super important people that he's entertaining here. A morsel of bread. You have refreshed yourselves and after you may, then you can pass on. Since, uh, since we have come, since you have come to your servant, you're here. I'm so honored that you're here. Let me make you a big meal. They said, fine. Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly. Now remember, in the ancient world, a patriarch like this, 99 years old, they didn't run. They did not run. They made other people run. A guy like this important, but, what we're supposed to see here is how important the visitors are, that Abraham is like, <laughs> he's running around making sure everything is exactly the way it needs to be. He says, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good. Very expensive, by the way, to do that. They had no refrigeration. They kept everything alive and until they slaughtered it. And so uh, to... Kill the fatted calf was a very expensive, very lavish form of hospitality. Tender and good, and gave it to the young, to a young man, and he prepared it quickly, 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 run around, you know, see the importance of this, these three. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. This is quite a luscious meal in that era. Among these people, this would have been really a very cool meal. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Do you know angels can actually eat? If they take human form, angels can eat. Can you imagine what it would be like to be an angel? Because they don't have to eat that we know of. They take, they're spirit beings, but they can take human form. And then they come down and they go, hey, this is pretty good. No wonder the humans like doing this. So he's watching them, and the angels are there eating. Then they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent, of course. I mean, they're out under the tree. They're eating and stuff. And she's in the tent. And then the Lord, notice it's Yahweh, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, this is the first time he's actually set a date on this. It's been 25 years. And the Lord says, now, I'm going to be back at this time next year, and by that time, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's thinking, really? And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, this must have happened a lot in these clans, where you have people eavesdropping on one another. So Tara, Sarah sees this happen, and she's good. This is really special. I mean, my husband is running around here doing all this stuff. Who are these guys? And so they're talking. So she gets there by the tent door to listen in on the conversation, which the Lord wants her to. 
Now, he doesn't always want you to do that. You understand? But he wanted her to overhear what he was saying. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. It's a cute way to put it. So Sarah laughed to herself. She's thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> I've been praying for a kid. I'm 89 stinking years old and I'm waiting. Are you kidding me? It's like news too good to be true. Might have been a little bit of bitterness as well. Why wait this long? We'll talk about that. Sarah laughed to herself, it says. And she thinks to, she says, and this is interesting Hebrew here, after I am worn out, and it's the term used of a worn out garment, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, referring to, uh, to Abraham, uh, it was a term of respect often used between husbands and wives in that era. Some of you guys are thinking, I like this, I like this. She, Honey, you need to call me Lord. I'll do your funeral, it's not a problem. But in that era, in that era, um, this was a, just a respectful thing. It was not, there was no gender war about these kinds of things. It, she says, I'm all worn out and, and my, my husband is old. Am I going to have the pleasure, meaning the pleasure of a birth and a conception and a child and all of it that goes with it? Uh, she makes that very clear. She's thinking, this is just too good to be true. This, this can't be. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? You can't get away with anything. <laughs> She's over, you know, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah's hearing this. Why did Sarah laugh? Because this is a major question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? If the answer to that is, no, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Then that means if something's not happening that we've asked to happen, there's a reason why it's not happening, because nothing is too hard for the Lord. And I have to reiterate that because we forget it, frankly. We still forget this. If nothing is too hard for the Lord and we've requested a certain thing and it hasn't happened, then we have to trust that God has reasons for this. And this is, a, this is something that's going on all the way through the Bible. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it. She said, did not laugh. <laughs> I love this. This is one of my favorite passages. You know, he must have seen her. She must have come out from behind the tent or whatever it was, you know. You laughed. I did not. I didn't laugh. It's a r ridiculous to argue with the Lord about stuff like that. Um, he says, yeah, you did. It's like, I didn't do it, Lord, I didn't do it. Yeah, you did, honey. I know. I know you. And I don't blame you. But you need to be corrected on this. It's just a, I think it's a very warm scene. I've, I, uh, maybe I'm reading into it, but I think the Lord is being very gracious, very patient. He doesn't rebuke. It's a, it's a sort of a mild rebuke, but 
he can understand why she might be incredulous about this amazing thing. He says, yeah, you laughed. <laughs> so there's the visit. The Lord actually comes personally. He, he shows up to, to Abraham and he, he speaks directly about Sarah. Now that whole section in there was really about Sarah more than about Abraham. So that the Lord can get the point across, nothing is too hard for me and I promise this and it's about the salvation of the whole world if you remember from chapter 12. Sarah was probably thinking it's about me having a child. I mean when you're the one who's been praying for a particular thing and it happens, you know, you tend to see it as, yeah, the Lord has blessed me and I'm, and, and it tends to be, uh, something where you're focusing on yourself and the goodness of it. I'm not saying that's wrong. She would certainly have rejoiced amazingly about this. However, there is a broader plan. The reason for this child to be born is to eventually save the world through the seed of Abraham. So the promise is fulfilled. Now, uh, now the scene shifts in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And now something happens in which amazingly, this is one of the few, few places that you find in the scriptures, where the Lord himself reveals what he's thinking before he does or says something. He, 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 you, you're, in the next few verses, you're going to see he talks to himself, you might say. And the text, the scriptural text, is there to give us uh, insight into how the Lord is thinking about Abraham. And the scene shifts from the seed that will be born and the blessing that that is to the judgment that God will bring on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so let's have a look at it. Chapter 18, verse 16. And the men set out from there. They looked down toward Sodom, uh, which is down by the Dead Sea, okay? And from the hills of Judah, which are all desert you know, when they say wilderness, most of you know this, but, you know, when they say wilderness in the Bible, it's desert wilderness, big hills, but not trees. And so you can look between the hills, and you can see portions of the Dead Sea. That's where Sodom was, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they're moving uh, now from the place where the encampment was, and he's like walking them to the edge of the path that was going to go down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. The men set out from there. They looked down toward Sodom. Abraham went with them uh, to set them on their way. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, look at, look at this. He, he's, he's letting us know how he's thinking. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, this is a repetition. That's a restatement from chapter 12 of Genesis, which is the Abrahamic covenant. See, that covenant is so important. You see it repeated in these different ways. And the Lord says, I'm in covenant with Abraham. Um, and, the, and the nations of the earth will be blessed by him or through him. For I have chosen I have chosen him. This emphasis on God's choosing, even though it mystifies us and we sometimes wonder how it is that he does this, it's recurring in the Bible where he makes choices among human beings. For I have chosen him that he may command his children, instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord 
by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Have a look at this for just a moment. And look at the covenant relationship that the Lord initiated. Now, what I want you to see here, I want you to see a couple of things as we work our way through the text. This is a covenant relationship that the Lord has initiated against a backdrop of judgment that the Lord will bring. Okay? And it results in intercession that the Lord wants to hear. Okay? So that's where we're going with this. And he remembers the covenant first of all. He says, I've chosen him, and I'm going to use him to bless the world, and he's going to keep my way. He's going to be different from the world. Why? Because he's going to be concerned with righteousness and justice. Remember I told you to remember those two words when Jesus is, those guys were saying, we're sons of Abraham, and Jesus said, no, you're not. You're trying to kill an innocent man. See, there's no righteousness and there's no justice in that. And the mark of belonging to God is that you are very concerned with what is right and what is fair for everyone around you, what is right and what is just for everyone around you. And this is repeated all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, the absence of justice in the society of Israel and Judah is why they went in, one of the three main reasons that they went into captivity. You can see it all through the prophets. It's the absence of doing what is right for other people. It's the absence of what we would call social justice. In our culture, we refer to this as social justice. Let me, let me offer you a piece of pastoral advice. Take it or leave it. Um, but don't be allergic to the words social justice. They're really uh, uh, volatile words these days because of politics. And uh, Christians need to not let their anger over the evil in the politics cloud their judgment in thinking like a Christian. Because the Bible's very clear. We as Christians should be in favor of justice among human beings at every point along the line. So don't be allergic to the phrase, but double-click on it and make sure that when you're talking to people about it, you're talking about the kind of thing God is talking about and not just what uh, atheist utopian schemes are out there using the phrase social justice. Make a distinction in your mind and don't, get, don't let your anger, and there's a lot of anger in our culture right now over these kinds of issues. Don't let that uh, cloud your judgment as a believer. Uh, as a believer, you can say, I want God's will done in every human life. Now notice, he says this about his covenant with Abraham. This is what makes, sets Abraham apart from the culture around him. He's interested in doing what's right. He's interested in doing what's just. That's why he went to rescue Lot when Lot was captured. And all the way through Abraham's life, this is what God commanded him to do. And when he didn't do it, there was a rebuke for him because he's part of the covenant of God. God chooses him. God uses him to bless the people around him, and God teaches him to think in terms of what is good and what is right for everyone around him. And notice also, he'll, tell, he'll teach his kids this. Do you see that in there? He'll command his own family. He'll teach his own kids how to do what is right and what is fair and what is good at every point along the line. That's part of the covenant. That's why Jesus, when he was asked, what is the Old Testament?, you know, boil it down. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's from the Shema. And love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor 
as yourself. Treat your neighbor the way you would want to be treated if you were them. He said, this is, everything hangs on these things. See, that's righteousness and justice. Now, of course, people don't do it. <laughs> and people fail at this. And that's why they need grace and mercy. But that's another aspect of the story. Look at the covenant and notice that this is what God is using. This is the logic he's using to say, I'm drawing now Abraham into my confidence about what I'm about to do. And it's the, the backdrop of, uh, of a judgment that the Lord will bring. He's going to bring a judgment. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. This is anthropomorphic. Do you guys know what that term means? It means man-shaped, human-shaped, anthropomorphic. And so when when the Bible talks this way about God, it's using human-like terms to explain what's going on in the account. Of course the Lord already knew what was going on down there. He didn't go down there and go, I had no idea it was so bad. He knew what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But for our sake and for Abraham's sake, he interacts using these human terms because he wants Abraham to intercede. He wants Abraham to know what's going on. So that's why the story is told in this particular in this particular way. See, judgment is inevitable. Judgment is inevitable. More on that in a minute. God is going to kill all sin. He's going to kill it all. And the problem is human beings are so enmeshed in it that they'll die along with it unless a miracle happens. I'm sort of tipping the hand a little bit, but this is the backdrop this, there's this covenant that God initiates. Then the backdrop is the judgment that God is going to bring about, which results in the intercession that God wants to hear from Abraham. He wants Abraham to intercede. And he draws him into um, his counsel, you might say. Abraham, what do you think? And... Uh, well, more on that in a minute. The, let me mention, though, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we see this uh, in the Bible. We saw it's the same root term that's used in Genesis 4.10, where the blood of Abel cries out. God says to Cain, the blood of Abel, your brother, is crying out to me from the ground. What, what does that mean? Well, yeah, it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor for the fact that evil in the world has a cry that God hears. It's the, the term means when someone cries out because they're being mistreated, because they've been abused, because they've been hurt. And God hears this. And, he, and what it does is it calls for vengeance and it calls for justice. And God enters into the picture on several occasions to bring those things. That's what's going on here. Evil has a voice. And God hears it. And he says, I will judge all the evil. That's just sobering. Because when you get into chapter 19 and you see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is, a, this is a down payment on a destruction you see in the book of Revelation at the end of time. This judgment is inevitable because the evil has a voice and God only puts up with it for so long.
and then he comes and judges. And that's the backdrop. Now, that emergency, you might say, is what then draws Abraham in to the intercession. Because at this point, the Lord's not just thinking to himself. He actually tells Abraham what he's going to do. And this then draws Abraham into the intercession. Verse 22. So the men turned from there, the other two angels, and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the Lord is standing there. Um, and the other two guys, the Lord says, you guys going down there. And they, they take off. Because Abraham, I mean, because the Lord wants to talk to Abraham one-on-one. Do you ever just realize, pastors, this happens from time to time where you're talking to people and one person stands until you can tell they're standing and waiting to talk to you. Okay. This is the Lord standing and waiting to talk to Abraham and he sends his, his two angelic company guys with down to, I want, to, I want some one-on-one time with Abraham. And the reason is because he wants Abraham to talk to him. So Abraham drew near, and he said, um, excuse me, but uh, <laughs> I have a question. <laughs> Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, this becomes crucially important in the text. The text is, will God ever do anything unrighteous? And uh, you know what Abraham's thinking. His, his uh, nephew's down there. He's assuming his nephew is not unrighteous. He's not like the rest of everybody in Sodom. Um, and so he's saying, look, if there's, and you know what happens, there's a little bargaining thing, not a bargaining, but just, uh, just a kind of a dickering, you know, I want, I'm not, he, he has got nothing to trade. This is all on mercy. He's saying, you're just, you're fair and you're merciful. Um, what, um, what if there's 50 people? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Notice the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. God makes a distinction between righteous and wicked. Question is, are there any really righteous people in the whole white world? And this is why in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says there is a kind of righteousness that can be given to you as a gift. And that's what you need if you're going to spend eternity with God. You need to be forgiven and given the gift of righteousness and declared righteous. Righteousness is... In my, in my theology classes, sometimes I'll ask the students, uh, do you have to be righteous to get into heaven? And, and unless I... If I just ask them that, they'll say no. Because they, they know that they've been forgiven. That's why they go to heaven. But the fact of the matter is you do have to be righteous to get into heaven. The righteousness you have in Christ is a gift. But it is very, very important. You can't go there. You can't be there if you're wicked. You have to be forgiven of your wickedness. Look at the distinction he's making here. This is a distinction made all through the Bible. And it's the backdrop for everything at the cross. It's really kind of amazing. So he says, far be it from you, you you're not going to treat the wicked and the righteous in the same way. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is righteous, what is good, what is right. And the Lord said, okay, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in this city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, well now, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, even 
even, even though I am but dust and ashes, so he's going to press in here, he wants to go down another five. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole place for the lack of five people? Interesting how he words it, huh? It's, a, it's pretty, good, pretty good dickering. For the lack of only five people, you're going to destroy the whole... And he said, okay, I won't destroy it if there's 45, if there's 45 righteous people. He spoke to him again. He said, suppose 40 are there. He goes down by another five. And he answers, he said, okay, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. An interesting conversation. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Now, he started out with increments of five. Now he's going to increments of 10. He's on a roll. He figures... He figures the Lord's getting, I'm, I'm able to get five and five and five down. Now I'm going to go for ten. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, okay, I won't do it if, if I find thirty there. And he says, well, uh, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, okay, for the sake of twenty, I, I won't destroy it. He said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak one more time. Suppose even ten are down there. And uh, he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. Now the conversation was over at that point. <laughs> he didn't want to go below ten. And Abraham was thinking, oh man, I hope Lot has ten friends. Which he didn't. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We'll pick up the second half of this 24-hour period next week when Travis teaches on it. What an amazing, uh, amazing thing. And look at the resulting intercession here. The emphasis is in verses 22 to 33 is the goodness and the justice of God. Um, you have to bear in mind that God will always do what's right with every human soul. This really troubles a lot of people in our culture because we've been taught, and it's really kind of a post-Christian idea, we've been taught that unless you explain everything to us, we're not going to accept it. We don't trust just people's character, and that includes God. It's amazing the number of people who even claim to know the Lord who don't trust his character. They'll actually ask questions like, was it right for him to drive the Canaanites out of Canaan? Was it right for him to order the execution of certain people at certain times? How can God do such a thing? Who does he think he is? Oh. Oh, yeah. He really is God. See, they're impugning his character at this point. You have to bear in mind, if you trust the Lord, and I say this all the time, it's very common here to hear it. If you trust the Lord with your soul, you're actually trusting him with everybody's soul. You're saying, if you saved me and I'm trusting you to do it, I can't turn around and say, you might not be fair to someone else, who, by the way, I probably don't even know, but I'm concerned that you might not be fair, and this whole idea of being saved in Jesus alone is just too restrictive, and I don't think that the gospel's fair, blah, 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 blah. See, that's a non-Christian view. If you come to the Lord, you're trusting him with everybody's soul. That's what this conversation's about. And what what comes to the fore here is that God will never do anything unjust or unrighteous. He's telling us to be just and righteous. You think he's going to be less just and less righteous when he deals with humans? You have to trust him with the human race. 
Um, it, our atheist culture, pretty much since the mid-1800s, Marxism, the original, not, neo, not just neo-Marxism, but original Marx stuff. He was an atheist. He was an apostate, actually. He had been raised in a Christian church. Um, uh, since then, people take the moral high ground over God. Be very careful about taking the moral high ground over God. Don't accuse him of being unrighteous to human beings. He doesn't owe humans anything. And that's, that's, a, that's why Abraham doesn't argue that Sodom isn't that bad. He knows how bad Sodom is. He argues, please have mercy based on the righteousness of some of the people. Now, that's a whole different argument. So God is going to do what's right and fair. Take note of that. And also take note of this. The power of covenant prayer. See, because Abraham has a covenant with him, God listens to him. Do not underestimate the power of covenant prayer. Jot down a passage. You might know it already. John 16, 25 to 28. It's great self-discipline for me to not turn to that passage. But I'll tell you what I would have told you if I had the time. It's uh, where Jesus said, you are going to actually pray exactly to the Father just like I do. And he says, I'm not telling you that I will go to the Father on your behalf because the Father loves you because you have loved me. He's going to hear your voice just like he hears mine. That is covenant prayer. He says, you're going to pray in my name. That's covenant prayer. And Look how effective it is. Look how this intercession works. It's, it's hugely important. The goodness and the justice of God, the power of covenant prayer right here. Okay, now we need to bring this to a close. So I, I want to ask some questions. Sometimes a way to learn from a passage is to ask questions from the passage. And I'm going to ask four questions and give you some answers to those things. And maybe the Lord will speak to us. First of all, why visit in person? Why does Yahweh show up in person looking like... A guy, a human, knowing, I mean, you know, and, the, and his two angel assistants, all looking like men. It says they, they were men. They stood there. They, they didn't look all glorious and glow in the dark with big honking wings behind them or anything. They, they just, why come in person? This is pretty rare. I mean, Abraham had heard his voice before and so on, but this is a very specific theophany. It's called a theophany, an appearance of God. Why come in person? Let me offer you this. Because the Lord himself is personally in charge of both judgment and salvation. He comes in person at this moment because he is personally in charge of both judgment and salvation. Salvation through the seed of Abraham. You're going to have this child next week. I know exactly what I'm doing with human history. This child needs to be born, and he will be. So that's salvation and judgment. I am going to kill all the evil. And this becomes a paradigm. Sodom and Gomorrah become a paradigm for the end judgment. Why does he come in person? Because he wants us to know that he is personally in charge of both salvation. Salvation is of the Lord and the judgment of the world. Jesus, by the way, is the judge of the world. He's the savior of the world. He's also the judge of the world. Which is sobering. We never sing songs about that. Um, But it's true. 
Why does Yahweh show up in person to make us know who's really, truly in charge? Uh, a pilot years ago, an airline pilot, I'm not a pilot, so I'm probably going to use this in a wrong way, but if you are a pilot, have mercy on me, okay? Um, but he told me that when they, in, in those days, this was many years ago, but he said when the, an airliner's coming in to land, the captain takes over the controls to land the plane. He said the captain has the controls. He, he would say that. He said, this is what we say. The captain has the controls and he would land the plane. Um, what we need to realize is that the captain, our captain, has the controls of these things at every point along the line. So when we think injustice is being done in the world, and it is, we have to remember there is a hell, there is a judgment, and the captain knows what he's doing. That's why he shows up in person. Second question, why take so long with Isaac? <laughs> why 25 years without an explanation? Are you trying to make it difficult for us to trust you, Lord? Well, let me offer two, two answers to this. Why take so long with Isaac? Number one, because God's salvation of the world has to be a miracle. He had to wait until they couldn't have kids on their own because the moral of the story is you can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do in yourself to save the world. It has to be. So he waits until humans are at the end of themselves, until they literally are at the end of themselves and they just throw themselves on his mercy. And he goes, finally, because it takes a miracle to save humanity. It, humanity can't save itself. It's tried. And it's trying right now. There's all kinds of schemes about how to make the perfect society without God. And the two big schemes in the 20th century were communism and Nazism. They were both utopian schemes to try and make a perfect society. And they both failed miserably and became totalitarian and everything else. You can't, humans can't do this. God is the one who has to do it. God has to save us. And it has to come in a way that the humans realize that they didn't do it themselves. That's why he waited so long. And three, uh, it, not just Sarah, but Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel were all barren. The three first matriarchs in, in the tribe of, uh, of Abraham's seed were all barren until the Lord opened their wombs. Over and over and over, the Lord says, this is up to me, I'm the one, and you can only be saved by a miracle. So don't believe liberal theology when it tells you that, oh no, salvation is just you being nice because you like Jesus. No, salvation is when you repent and trust the supernatural reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It is supernatural. It comes directly from God. It is unbreakable because of that. This is the promise. Don't buy the other messages. That's why he waited so long. And he does it again and again and again. Here's another reason he waited so long. Because God's work on the earth... Um, no, it's because his work through faith... If it's not stretched, if the faith is not stretched, then it probably is simply self-confidence with a religious paint job. Think about it. If faith is never tested, see what it says in James chapter 1 is you should be glad when your faith is tested because it produces steadfastness. That means it, you then find out if it's real and strong. 
So if faith is never tested, and it's almost always tested by trauma, sorrow, um, unanswered questions over a period of time, but faith that isn't stretched could just be self-confidence, religious self-confidence, which is terrible. It produces arrogance, but faith that has been stretched produces humility and courage. So he waited a long time. It has to be a miracle that saves us, and if our faith is never stretched, we never know if it's real. And if you're saying, I want my faith to grow, it will grow because it's being stretched. You say, but yeah, but I don't know if I can... This is you growing. But I'm sick of growing. I know, I know, I know. Why visit in person? Because he's in charge of the judgment and salvation. Why take so long? Because salvation needs to be a miracle and because faith needs to be stretched. Third, why draw Abraham into the plan? It's so much more efficient to deal without humans. Don't you think? I mean, you are a human and you don't want to deal with humans. Right? I mean, how many times have you thought to yourself, if I want this done right, what? I'll do it myself. Get out of my way. I'm sick of dealing with these humans. They screw up all the time. Why bother? He knew what was going on down there. He could have just said, come on, Gabriel, let's go wipe out those cities. I'm done. There's a reason for this. We were created to be co-regents with God. He created us in his image so that in the material world, we would be able to speak for him and be a part of what he's doing. Now, when we screwed that up, he did not give up on us. And he insists on using us to accomplish the plan that he has in mind. He included Abraham so that Abraham would intercede. He wanted Abraham to intercede. He plans ahead to let us, quote-unquote, change his mind when we intercede. And I say, quote-unquote, because if he plans it ahead of time, then, yeah, he's kind of changing his mind, kind of not. But he's using intercept. People say, why am I praying for stuff if, if God already knows what I need? Because he told you to. And because he wants to hear the voice of the people who have a covenant with him. Which is why Christian prayer is so unique in the whole wide world. Christian prayer is unique in the whole world. That's why I quoted John 16 to you. Um, what passes for prayer in the world isn't prayer. It's talking sometimes to demons. It's talking sometimes just into the air. But when you talk to God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, because you're, caught, you're praying in Jesus' name, that is what he's listening for. And it has a huge effect. He wants that to happen. He wants our intercession. And he wants us, I'm not saying dicker, you know what I'm But look how persistent the prayer is. And Jesus taught persistence in prayer. In all of his parables, he taught persistence. Yeah. Why does he draw Abraham into the plan? Because God's work on earth includes his covenant people. That includes mission. That includes prayer. That includes all the living our life for him. I jot down Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He means keep your head in the game. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
for it is God who is at work within you. Isn't that interesting? Both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He's at work in you, through you, in your intercession. He prompts you to pray and in your actions when you represent him. He wants us as covenant partners in the work that he's doing. It's the way he's ordained it. That's why in order to save the world, he became one of us so that a human being could be in charge of the world. The risen Lord Jesus, still a human this very day and in charge of the universe as a human, that was God's design all along. Is this making sense? So, yeah. So, why take Abraham into the plan? Because he he works through humans and he wants the intercession. And also, here's another reason, because he will judge the world, but he's not in a rush to do it. Did you, did you pick that up here? I mean, he, he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's not rushing to judge it. Which, you know, when we see bad stuff happen, we go, how long, O oh Lord? That phrase is repeated in the Bible. How long are you going to put up with evil, O oh Lord? And he says, I am, in, in uh, Ezekiel 18, he, he says, I, am, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I will bring judgment, but I'm not in a rush to judgment. And I, and I am waiting for people to repent. Bottom line, I'm waiting for people to repent. You go, well, Lord, why didn't you, why don't you judge the evil? Well, if I'd have judged it before you repented, guess where you would be? It reminds me of all of us who, who left California and moved to Oregon and then wanted to stop anybody else from moving to Oregon. Did anybody ever notice that? All the people who say, don't let people move to Oregon, they're all ex-Californians. Now that's happening in Idaho. So the Lord is patient. He's not in a rush to judgment. And that's why he takes Abraham into his counsel. It's wonderful to be called into the counsel of God. To have the Lord say to you, what would you like to see me do? That's just, as a redeemed person, what a privilege. He doesn't always do it the way we ask, but he wants us to ask. I just, that's wonderful. So why draw Abraham into the plan? Because he uses humans and because he is going to judge, but he's not in a rush to do it. And here's the final question. Why trust the seed of Abraham? Now, of course, and jot down, I won't turn for lack of time, but I've turned to it before here. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Do you guys ever look up the passages I tell you to look up? Do you? Good. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. That's where it says, You have now by faith come into Christ, so there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, and you're all the offspring of Abraham. That takes us right back to what we said in the very beginning here. The offspring of Abraham. Why trust the seed of Abraham? Because that's where the justice and the mercy meet. How can God save sinners? We see his mercy here, and we see his commitment to justice. Once you realize there are no actually completely righteous people, then you realize the driving force of the entire plot of the Bible is this dilemma. How can God save sinners because they cannot save themselves? Because it has to be just and righteous. It has to be fair. But they've killed. They've sinned. They've fallen short of the glory of God. They can't, there's no way they can pull themselves out of this. 
How can God save people who are bad because he is both just and merciful? That is the dilemma that drives the entire Bible, which is why the Bible points to the cross of Christ. He can do it by becoming one of us and dying for our sins. So that if we are spiritually, metaphysically joined to him by faith, we repent, we come to him, we can actually be declared righteous and not destroyed with the wicked. That's gospel. That's wonderful news. That's why we talk about this. That's why we want to live in righteousness and justice. That's why we want to honor God in our actions. And that's what he reminds us of. So if you haven't come to the Lord, and this is going to sound horrible for me to say this, but if you haven't come, I'm going to say it anyway, though. <laughs> I'm retiring. I get to. Um, if you haven't come to the Lord, you are among the wicked. Now that is this. Some of you are like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Notice the difference between the wicked and the righteous. People who don't repent of their sins are not sons of Abraham. Remember John chapter 8? <laughs> Amen. There is such a thing as wickedness. If you want not to be wicked, if you want to be forgiven, come to the Lord. We'll have some people up here to pray for you afterwards. If you have come to the Lord, rejoice that you're in the Lord. Rejoice that he has given you righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand and we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us of these things. There's so much sobering reality here. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, but we are in awe of your judgment as well. We see the promise of the seed of Abraham here in this chapter, and we see also the promise of eventual judgment. Would you please open our hearts, even as Christians, afresh and anew to the glory of what it means to belong to you. We thank you so much, Father. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.